0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Well, today's a special day. Once again, it's Tuesday, and on Travel Tuesday, we speak to our members from all around the world. Every time we catch up with them, they give us more important information about things we need to know to do business in their jurisdiction. And today, we'll be learning more about doing business in British Columbia, Canada. I'm pleased to welcome to the program James Kondopoulos and Greg Haywood, both partners at Robert Grayell, our member in British Columbia. Gentlemen, how are you today?
1: Very well, Pete. Thank you. Quite well today. Thanks, Pete.
0: So guys, let's get started. I think since both of you are on the show, I'm going to let you divide and conquer these topics, but we always want to start out, and Greg, I'll start with you, just giving our listeners an overview of the jurisdiction. Just tell us more about BC if you can.
2: Absolutely. Happy to. It's a lovely province, it's been my home for about 35 years. It has an estimated population of about 5.2 million as of 2021 and is Canada's third most populous province. The capital of British Columbia is not Vancouver, it's Victoria. And Victoria is not on Victoria Island, it's on Vancouver Island. Vancouver is the third largest metropolitan area in, in Canada. And we had a census uh, in 2021 that recorded the population of about 2.6 in Metro Vancouver, 2.6 million. BC is very diverse and cosmopolitan province. We have a plethora of cultural influences from British, European, Asian, diasporas, as well as indigenous population. Although the province's ethnic majority originates from the British Isles, many British Columbians also trace their ancestors to continental Europe. China, South Asia, and our indigenous Canadians make up about 5% of the province's total population. BC's economy is primarily based on forestry, mining, cinematography, as well as filmmaking, tourism, real estate, construction, wholesale, and retail. Its main exports include lumber and timber, pulp and paper products, copper, coal, natural gas. BC also benefits from its high property values and being a center for maritime trade. The Port of Vancouver is the largest port in Canada and the most diversified port in all of North America. Although less than 5% of the province's territory is arable land, significant agriculture exists in the Fraser Valley and the Okanagan due to the warmer climate. BC is the fourth largest province or territory in Canada by GDP. Now, 75% of the province is mountainous, and that's more than 1,000 metres above sea level. 60% is forested, and only about 5% is arable. And we, unfortunately, lost a lot of the arable land in the Fraser Valley last spring with the tremendous flooding, but we'll see how that recovers. A very important part of British Columbia's history is the fact that we have 200 First Nations in BC prior to contact with non-Aboriginal people the human history is known from the oral histories of the First Nations groups, archaeological investigations, and from early records of explorers encountering societies in this early period. The lack of treaties with the First Nations in British Columbia is a longstanding problem that has become a major issue in recent years. A major development was in 1997, decision of the Supreme Court of Canada Delgamuuk that recognized Aboriginal title exists in British Columbia. And that in dealing with Crown land, the government must consult with and may have to compensate First Nations whose rights are affected. So that imposes quite a significant step for any resource extraction company. They must consult with First Nations. It adds a very big dynamic because most of our land is not under treaties. As of 2009, there are 60 First Nations participating in the BC Treaty process. Because some First Nations negotiated a common table, there's 49 sets of concurrent negotiations going on right now to establish treaties with the First Nations. BC became the sixth province to join Confederation on July 20, 1871. And one of the major reasons for joining Canada was basically a fear of annexation to the United States. Certainly, I can understand that motivation. British Columbia has moved from approximately 10% of Canada's population in 1971 to 13% in 2006. It's seen as a nice place to work and live, and we expect that trend to continue. In terms of language, English is by far the most commonly spoken, although there are a significant number of Punjabi, Cantonese, Mandarin, Telugu, German, French, Korean, Spanish, and Persian speakers. And in fact, On the north shore of Vancouver, there's over 100,000 Persians, making it one of the larger Persian communities outside of Iran. And it has resulted in some simply exquisite restaurants on the north shore. And not to mention, there are at least two Greek families living in Vancouver, one of which goes by the name of Kandopoulos, significant contributors to the province. In 2017, the 2017 election The NDP formed a minority government with the support of the Green Party. The Green Party was a rump party of only three MLAs, but they held the balance of power. In 2020, there was another general election, and the NDP won 57 seats and formed a majority government, making Premier Horgan the first NDP premier to be re-elected in the province. In terms of BC's economy, it is diverse with service-producing industries accounting for the largest portion of the province's GDP. British Columbia has a history of being a resource-dominated economy centered on the forestry industry, but also with fluctuating importance in mining. Employment in the resource sector has fallen steadily as a percentage of employment, and new jobs are mostly in the construction and retail service sectors. It is now has the highest percentage of service industry jobs in the West, comprising of 72% of the industry compared to 60% as a Western Canadian average. The largest section of this employment is in finance, insurance, real estate, corporate management. However, many areas outside the metropolitan areas are still heavily reliant on resource extraction. An important industry for BC is its film industry. BC is known as Hollywood North. The Vancouver region is the third largest feature film production location in North America after Los Angeles and New York City. BC is also known for having politically active labor unions who. Have traditionally supported the NDP or its predecessor, the CCF. With the NDP being holding a majority position, they have commenced a series of amendments to the Employment Standards Act, the Labor Relations Code, and are now focused on the Workers' Compensation Act, making labor friendly amendments. Finally, BC is home to one of the country's very best labor and employment boutiques. That's Roper Grail. We are currently about 50 lawyers, with three more of our article students joining us shortly. We'll be 53. This makes us the largest labor firm located in Western Canada. And we've been a proud member of the ELA since 2006, representing British Columbia.
0: Wow. So that is quite an update. And I do appreciate the plug for the ELA and certainly for the best law firm in British Columbia. Let's welcome James Kondopoulos into the conversation, James. And let's talk about some of the Issues we have when we are hiring people. Let's say I want to move my company to British Columbia and I want to hire locally. What are some of the issues that I need to be aware of? And let's kind of turn up the calendar to recent times and what kind of changes have happened that might have impacted my ability to hire locally in the past?
1: Great. Well, thanks for that, Pete and Greg. And I will break it down into two steps, Pete. I will address the structural issues first and the legal landscape at a very high level. And then I will turn to a couple of significant changes which have occurred or are on the horizon. So employers in most Canadian provinces, including British Columbia, are governed by both legislation and the common law. The three main pieces of legislation governing employment in BC are the Employment Standards Act, the Labour Relations Code, and the Human Rights Code. The common law is judge-made law. It continuously evolves, and it's based on past case law or precedent. The Canadian Constitution divides legislative authority between the federal and provincial branches of government. Provinces have jurisdiction over such things as education, municipal institutions, local works, and so on. Generally, all matters of a merely local or private nature in the province. The majority of companies in BC are provincially regulated. Now, the federal parliament governs banking, postal service, shipping, as well as other employers with core activities that are cross-provincial. Airlines, railways, telecom companies generally fall within the federal sphere. Both federally regulated and provincially regulated companies must abide by the governing legislation in the jurisdiction and the common law. Now, my comments here are focused particularly on employers governed by BC provincial law. And let's talk about that for a moment. The Human Rights Code that I mentioned a moment or two ago prohibits discrimination in employment on the basis of several protected grounds, including, for example, and and this is not an exhaustive list, race, physical or mental disability, religion, sex, sexual orientation, age, and criminal or summary conviction offenses unrelated to employment or intended employment. Now, the code may exempt discriminatory conduct if it is based on what is known as a bona fide occupational requirement. This means that an employer that imposes a discriminatory workplace rule or qualification may defend that rule or qualification if it can show that the rule or qualification is reasonable and bona fide. Now, where a workplace rule results in discrimination the employer has a duty to accommodate the affected employee to the point of undue hardship. And the onus will be on the employer to establish it has met its duty to accommodate to the point of undue hardship. Factors that will be considered in assessing whether accommodation will result in undue hardship include, and this again is not exhaustive, the size of the employer's operation, safety concerns costs to the employer, including impact on efficiency, pay increases, and other direct financial costs. And of course, no single factor will be determinative. You assess each situation in the context of all the facts. Now, that's the human rights piece. Let's talk about the employment contract. The law in BC presumes that employers and employees intend to continue the employment contract. They intend for the contract to remain in force indefinitely. Now, the Employment Standards Act requires employers to provide a minimum period of notice of termination to employees if the employer is intending to end the relationship. Employees may also have common law or judge-made law rights with respect to notice of termination of employment, which can be in excess of the statutory rights. The right to notice will be implied in most employment relationships with or without a written contract. And when you're providing the termination notice, you can also discharge that with pay in lieu of notice. If you have just cause for termination, and that generally is serious wrongdoing on the part of the employee, you can end the employment relationship without notice without advance notice to the employee. Unionized employees, unlike their non-union colleagues, cannot be dismissed simply by providing notice of termination. They are entitled to continued employment unless there is just and reasonable cause for their dismissal. So that, Pete, at a very high level is the legal landscape. And I'll talk for just a moment about two very significant changes to the employment and labor law landscape over the past little while and in the coming period of time. I can tell you the BC provincial government, the NDP government that Greg spoke of, intends to make a very significant change to the labor relations code and specifically to move to card-based or card check certification. And what that contemplates is if a trade union obtains signed union cards from at least 55% of the proposed bargaining unit, the Labor Relations Board will then certify the union as the exclusive bargaining agent for the employees without a secret ballot vote. So what you have there is the elimination of that vote, purely card check or card-based certification. The other significant change, and this one is already in place, as of January 1st of this year, 2022, all employees who have completed 90 consecutive calendar days of employment are entitled to five days of paid sick leave. That's on the employer's tab per year for any personal illness or injury. And I understand that brings British Columbia into line, or at least in the same ballpark as paid sick leave requirements in, as I understand it, Europe, Australia, and California, I believe.
0: So let's go back to Greg. Based on all I heard from you and what we heard from James, I'd like to get out my business employee scale here, where we usually put bricks on either side and try and determine, is your jurisdiction and the business climate there geared more pro-business or more pro-employee? What do you think?
2: Well, thanks, Pete. The Liberal government, which has been the de facto government of BC for the majority of the time in the past few decades, has been considered as a business-friendly government. But now we've had the NDP that have won two elections in a row, the second election with a majority, And while they've made a number of pro-labor changes to legislation, they're generally perceived to be doing a pretty good job. So I do anticipate the NDP, they have a good chance of being successful in the next election. I think they may have a run for quite a while. I think the majority of British Columbians think that the government was very good in dealing with the COVID pandemic, walking that balance between locking down the community and allowing life to continue. Virtually all the pandemic restrictions have been lifted in BC. Currently, 31.3 million in Canada, or 82.4% of the population has been fully vaccinated in BC. 52% of the population has had their third dose, and vaccinations are available to children as young as five. 84% of British Columbians are fully vaccinated. So I think we're really starting to come out with this and living with the condition of an ongoing pandemic, albeit perhaps not as deadly as before. In closing, I would say in British Columbia, our labor, utility, and facility costs are generally lower than most top North American locations, as are our corporate income tax rates. Combined with a dependable legal system, British Columbia, I would say is the optimal location for business opportunities in North America and around the world.
0: Interesting. So let's talk about coming into British Columbia and certainly moving across Canada, come to British Columbia is one thing, but I know from several attempts to get to Canada over the last year, that the gate has been locked. So James, if you could give us a sense of what the cross-border business opportunities are and what immigration standards there are now and and whether or not it's lightened up, if it's getting easier, if it's hard, are there special programs for certain folks that need to come in? Give us a sense of that, James. All
1: right, Pete. So the first thing to know is Canada is a country that tries to offset a low birth rate through planned immigration goals. And those goals are roughly 1% of the population per year. Approximately 58% of the annual immigration spots are reserved for economic or business immigrants. So immigration in Canada is largely federal in nature, with provinces having some control over immigration streams that specifically support their local labor market needs. So federally, many cross-border business opportunities can be advanced without needing a work permit. And work is defined by Canadian immigration law as an activity for which remuneration is paid or that is in direct competition with the Canadian labor market. The general rule is that one needs a work permit to conduct work in Canada, which in turn typically requires an employer-side registration and submission, regardless of whether one characterizes oneself as an employee or independent contractor. The employer-side submission can be audited for six years, and Immigration Canada randomly audits a significant number of employees. Business visitors, by comparison, are work permit exempt with no employer sidesteps or risk required. A business visitor can take part in international business activities that are not part of the Canadian labour market, meaning they don't offend that definition of work I talked about previously, you know, no pay in Canada, no displacement of Canadian workers, those business visitors can visit Canada temporarily to explore ways to grow business, invest, and advance business relationships. Business visitors usually stay for short periods and frequent crossings into Canada or longer trips will increase the risk that the processing border officer refuses entry or requires a work permit application. Now, let's talk about our special relationship with the United States and Mexico. Citizens of the U.S. and Mexico can enjoy a slightly more robust business visitor exemption under the Canada-United States-Mexico Agreement, which also has immigration streams for traders, investors, intra-company transferees, and professionals. The professionals list I've just described facilitates mobility and multi-year work permits for highly skilled workers whose job title and educational background match the treaty requirements. Unfortunately, there are no business executive job titles on that list. Worse, when the agreement was recently negotiated, the list of job titles was not updated to bring it into the modern age. I suppose those negotiators had enough on their plate at the time. Global employers in any WTO country can take advantage of the business-friendly intra-company transferee provisions available under the General Agreement on Trade and Services, provided the transferring employee has work experience in an executive, managerial, or specialized knowledge role with the foreign jurisdiction, and the foreign and Canadian entities have an enterprise, parent, subsidiary, branch, or affiliate relationship. Now, let's talk specifically about British Columbia. It has a rich history, as Greg has described, as an immigration-friendly province. I mean, the province is built on immigration. The BC Provincial Nominee Program allows the BC government to support the federal immigration processes of select individuals through immigration streams designed to meet the labor market needs in the province and contribute to economic development here. There is a BC stream for skilled workers abroad that have an employment offer in Saskatchewan, say, regardless of job title. There are specific provincial nominee program categories for high-skilled, semi-skilled workers, entrepreneurs, and a priority occupation list for tech sector, healthcare, and childcare occupations, where Canada's federal immigration processing is conducted. With respect to slow-moving, intentionally faceless bureaucracy, BC is more nimble and personal and supportive of those looking to make our province their home.
0: Wonderful. You guys, you've sold me. I mean, super review. And obviously, folks listening in, our friends in Canada are great friends and great lawyers. And uh, we always appreciate having them on the show. Guys, it's been great to have you. James, Greg, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks, Pete. Thank you so much, Pete.
0: If you'd like to connect with James or Greg, you can find their bios by clicking on their names in the description of this podcast. Also visit ela.law to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content in the online library, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.